Numbers chapter 30. We are coming shortly, right, in a couple chapters here towards the end of Numbers. Again, the grand theme of Numbers is obedience versus disobedience. When we're obedient to God, it's usually fueled out of that either fear of the Lord or faith in God, faith in God's Word. It's so healthy, so important for us to have a healthy mix of both of those things, the reverence and the fear of God, the respect of God, but also just being men and women of faith. That without faith, it is impossible to please God. And oftentimes, our disobedience is led by fear. Our fears, fear of men, fear of decision, fear of missing out, it causes us to be disobedient to God's word. The outline in chapters 1 through 10, we see Israel's obedience to the Lord. Everything's going great. Everything's going simple. They're just trucking along as they're leaving Egypt, right? And they're making their journey, beginning their journey through the wilderness. Then in chapters 11 through 25, we see Israel's disobedience to the Lord and all of the pain it causes, all of the trials it causes, all of the death that their disobedience causes, right? The wages of sin is is death. There's no way out of that equation, You can't change your bank account. You can't change the routing number, right? No matter what we do, if we are sinning, we will reap death. There's no way out of that. Then finally, we come to the season where Israel's obeying the Lord. In chapters 26 through 36, we see God reminding the second generation of the laws of the covenant God has for them. And we see their obedience to God and the blessings that it causes them. So, Let's jump in here so we can get through it all. Chapter 30, verse 1 and 2, it says, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. What a concept, right? God demands honesty and truth. That if we're God's people, God expects His people to keep their word. That whatever we say we're going to do, we should actually do it. What a concept for us. Every vow, every oath, every agreement that we make should be followed up with. And we should be obedient to it. We should be men and women of our word. Our spouses, our kids, our employees, our bosses, they should not question or have to wonder, is this guy, is this girl going to actually do what they're saying that they're doing? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 34 through 37, Jesus tells us, do not swear at all, neither by heaven or because it's God's throne nor by the earth because it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. What God's saying is that if we are men and women of our word, we don't have to add on to that we're being for real, for real this time, right? 
that th this time we're being legit. And we've all been there as kids, right? I pinky swear, right? I swear on my mother's grave. And you got to make it bigger and bigger, the bigger of a liar you are, right? You have to somehow make the stake so heavy that they'll somehow believe you. Oof, he's swearing on his mother's grave, right? She's still alive, but he, he's swearing on, on his mother's grave. Jesus is telling us that our yes should be enough and our no should be enough. In James chapter 5, verse 12, James repeats the same thing. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Again, could you imagine a world where, forget about the whole world, but every Christian would fulfill their word? Every Christian would be a man or a woman of their word. Imagine if every single Christian marriage, their word would be kept. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Imagine every business deal. You don't have to sign a 50-page contract, right? You could just shake someone's hand and say, yes, this is what I'm going to do, and it'll happen. Every contract, every relationship. So many of the kids here, they have difficulty with their parents because their parents say they're going to do something, and then it doesn't happen. That's difficult. We should be men and women of our word. A couple quotes here. JFK says, I, or said, he doesn't still say it today, but he once said, I would rather be accused of breaking precedents than breaking promises. Right? That's good for us. We should be men and women of our word. Another quote here says, The greatest thing you have to offer is your word, but only if you plan on keeping it. Only if you plan on keeping it. I think many Christians, right, are sadly like this comedian. He said, I'm a man of my word, and that word is unreliable. <laughs> right? That, that's terrible. Believers, we shouldn't be known as flakes. We shouldn't be known as, right, we're pancakes, and we're always flipping, flopping on our word. Whatever we say, our yes should be yes, and our no should be no. Jesus even tells believers to consider the cost of following him, before we swear our life to him, before we make the vow saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you, Jesus tells us, consider the cost. Let's turn there quickly in Luke chapter 14, Luke 14, verse 27. And this may come as a surprise to some of us. Oftentimes when the gospel is preached, there's a much different tune being said. But here's Jesus preaching and sharing the gospel. Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 27, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Again, if this is Jesus telling us to consider the decision that we're making in following him, how much more should we consider our decisions when we're dealing with human beings, right? When we're dealing with spouses and family members and kids. 
We should be men and women of our word. And here Moses is telling God's people, not only should we be men and women of our word, but we should fulfill every vow that we have made to God. Just because we don't take those vows seriously does not mean that God does not take our vows seriously. Right? We didn't study for that test, so what's that prayer? Each person has prayed, right? Lord, I know I didn't study this time, but, right? If you help me pass this test, I promise, God, from here on out, I will study. Or you have the red and blue lights behind you, right? You get pulled over. Lord, I promise, if you get me out of this ticket, I'll never speed again, right? Well, whatever that vow is, and sadly, it can get deeper than that. Lord, if you save my son or daughter, Lord, if you save my marriage, I promise I will do X, Y, or Z. We should fulfill those vows. God expects us to fulfill those vows. It's better that we not make the vow in the first place than to make vows without any plan on fulfilling them. This is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. It says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not to pay. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21 through 23. This is the book right next door to Numbers, a couple pages to the right. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, we see this, and the Lord knows who we are. Sadly, many men, many women, we've seen their marriages saved, their kids saved from death, health given back to them, miracles happen, conception happens, baby happens, but after a few weeks, after a few months, after a few years, it seems like they've forgotten about it. They've forgotten about the God factor, and they slowly but surely fade away. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 through 23, it tells us, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips... You shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Again, as Christians, we should be known for the truth. We should be known for the truth. Our reputation ought to be that of men and women of truth in every state of our life and every season of our life, right? I know one person here that their parents grew up with them and they had Santa and Jesus, right? Santa and Jesus, Santa and Jesus. And one day they found out Santa wasn't real, right? So what was the very first question the child had for their parents? Is Jesus fake too? Are you lying to me about Jesus too? The importance of us being men and women of our word. John chapter 17, verse 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. John chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it says that the church is the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And finally, Revelation 21, verse 6, is a warning to us. It tells us that the cowardly, 
the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Again, as Christians, as men and women that belong to God, we should be known as men and women of truth. We go back to Numbers 30, verse 3, and now it tells us verse 3 through 5, Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. You see, any unmarried woman still living under her dad, living in her father's house, was under his lordship. So that father had the responsibility and the right to overrule her if she made a foolish vow. Robert Jameson, he's one commentator, he says, The judgment of a father or a guardian on the vow of any under his charge might have been given either by expressed approval or by silence which was to be constructed as approval. But in the case of a husband who after silence from day to day should ultimately disapprove or hinder his wife's vow, the sin of her non-performance was to be imputed to him and not to her. We'll see that in the next section. But here a truth is being brought to the surface that we as parents need to stand in the gap for our kids. There's a lie that many parents buy into, that it's too late for them to stand for righteousness in their homes. It's too late for them to change who they are or their parenting or the morals within their home. But here, what God is telling Moses and telling the fathers that if your kids are doing foolish things, you need to stand up and speak the truth. If they're making foolish vows, you need to stand up and speak the truth. Because in this sense, if you are silent, you are agreeing with them. And you're agreeing with the vow. In James chapter 4, verse 17, it tells us, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Again, there's a great balance as parents, especially when our kids are older and they're out of the house. The balance that you're not just beating them up with the Bible every single time that you see them, right? That happens once they're out of the house. Once they're adults, they're out of the house. They're paying for their own house, their own rent, their own mortgage, their own everything. But until then, we have a responsibility to stand in the gap for righteousness. And to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15, speak the truth in love. You see, why is it so important for us to speak the truth in love? The context of Ephesians 4 is brilliant. In Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, it tells us, But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share 
causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Again, parents were called to speak the truth in love because we are in charge of the body within our home, within the body of Christ. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to stop having apathy and just saying, it's too late. I can't do anything about it. It's been four years. I can't do anything about it. It's been eight years. It's been 18 years. It's been 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. If they're under your home, they are under your care. We need to make sure that we're not fearing our kids and what they think or if they move out or move to another city running from our stance on biblical truths than having the fear of God. It's a balance there. The fear of man versus the fear of God. And we talked about it, how oftentimes when we're disobedient to God, we're allowing the fear of men to control us. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the apostles, they're getting hammered over and over and over again by the political leaders and the religious leaders. They're getting thrown in prison, and then they get out of prison. Then they're getting thrown in prison and out of prison. And one time they come here in front of these men once again, the very same men that had the power to take Jesus, falsely accuse him, falsely imprison him, and falsely kill him, right? And yet when they stand up in front of them, they tell them, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. And again, this is the stance that we need to take within our homes, that we are more than willing to obey God rather than men. We continue, here's the next relationship in verse 6 through 8. It says, If indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself, and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears, then her vow shall stand and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, He shall make void her vow, which she took and which she uttered with her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. Once again, here instead of a daughter being under the lordship of her father, here we have the wife being under the authority of her husband. You see, the husband had the privilege to confirm or deny the vows and the promises of his wife. And however, just like the father in the last section, the silence of the husband was also taken as approval in the vows and in the relationship of the wife. Verse 29, Also, any vow of a widow or divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. So if a woman was widowed or if she was divorced, she had to stand on her own word. She's not under the authority of any man. Verse 10 through 16 now. It tells us if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will release her. 
Every vow and every bounding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it, or her husband may make it void. Now if her husband makes no response, whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife and between a father and his daughter in her youth in her father's house. Here we come to the last one, right? The responsibility of the husband over the wife. Some people, this makes them squeamish, right? Whenever we talk about this in God's word. But the husband was to suffer for the broken vow of the wife as if he himself had broken the vow. You see, this is the balance of a husband being over the wife in authority, yet also having to deal with the responsibility of his wife's actions, of his wife's words, and of his silence. Yes, the husband is in the authority of the home, but the husband bears the responsibility of the home upon his shoulders. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, we can turn there quickly. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, and to the dads here, to the husbands here, it's so important for us to have a grasp of what's going on in the home. What's going on in a home? It's a terrible excuse to say, oh, I'm the husband, so I take care of these things, and my wife takes care of everything else in the home. At the end of the day, you're responsible for it. If things start falling apart, if things start breaking apart, if your sons or daughters are going off in their own vices, and you're saying, hey, that was my wife's responsibility, no, that's on you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 It tells us, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. But he nourishes it and he cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. In the same way, husbands, we should love and care for our wives. Because they're broken vows, right, or the vows that they make that now we have to deal with the repercussions of it, verse 15 tells us that he shall bear her guilt. That's the responsibility of a husband. David Guzik, he says, when God declares someone to be in position of rightful authority and others are expected to submit to that authority, the head is also accountable before God for the results. God never grants authority without accountability. When this is understood, it makes submission much easier. Again, for every man here just throwing those Bible verses at their wife so that they could do whatever they want, right? Remember, at the end of the day, you're going to bear all of that responsibility. You're going to be accountable for all of those poor decisions. And each time you guilted your wife or just threw Bible verses at her, right? And that's why, wives, it's so important to just submit to your husband. One of the pastor's wives says, submission is just ducking so God hits your husband instead of you. (laughs) That's all it is. He's the one that's responsible. He's the one that has to take the accountability for the home. So just submit to him. 
As long as he's not asking you to do anything that's sinful, just submit to him and allow God to deal with him and God to hold him accountable. As we're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 1 and 2. I think many men here dream about one day hearing this command from the Lord, right? Numbers chapter 31, verse 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. And afterward you shall be gathered to your people. You see, vengeance is a very interesting topic amongst Christians in the day and age that we live in. It tends to cause Christians to fall to two extremes. There are some Christians that believe any type of vengeance, any type of retribution is wrong and not Christ-like. And that we as Christians should just be doormats for everyone and anyone. See, that's unbiblical. There are also other Christians that think that they are God's John Wick, right? And they think that God has called them to be the Christian punisher. And that God has called them to go on an act of vengeance to clear the path for God. This is also wrong and unbiblical. For most of us, unless we've signed up and we're a part of the military, we are not going to be God's tools for vengeance. That word vengeance is retaliation or punishment for an injury or an offense. We can also think of it as retribution, which is something which is given in payment for a wrong. And God, if he would never exact vengeance, then our God would not be just. Our God would not be a God of justice if he never exacted vengeance. But God's vengeance is good and perfect and clean. The problem is our vengeance is bad, broken, and wrong. Because if we're honest, is our revenge, is our vengeance ever equal to what we've received? Right? That's why we've, we don't allow pranks in any youth camp right, or any young adult retreat. Because what happens with pranks? You wake someone up while they're sleeping, what does the next guy do, right? He takes a can of shaving cream and he fills their whole bag with it, right? Then what does the next guy do? The next guy buys five gallons of molasses and he puts it in his bag. Then what does the next... It, it just always goes out of control. Someone cuts you off in traffic. What's your revenge? Is it to just cut them off? No. It's cut them off, a couple hand signals, a couple bumping the brakes. And our vengeance tends to get out of control because our flesh takes over. But God's vengeance, it's pure it's clean, and it's upright. Our God is just, but he's also patient. You see, Romans chapter 12, verse 29 tells us, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, we are called as believers to bless our enemies. To pray for those who spitefully use us. And at the end of verse 20 there, when it says, In doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Growing up, I always thought, oh, that's incredible, right? If I'm just good to them, God's going to just take the barbecue and just pour it on their head, right? It's going to be great. Their hair is going to be on fire. They're going to have to run for their life. That's not what it means. 
here you'd literally be saving someone's life. Because if the fire went out in their home, you would be bringing coals of fire to their house to bring life back into their homes. That's why it's so important for us to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Again, God has given each of us a desire for justice. Right? Many ladies, what do they like watching? Romantic comedies and things like that, right? Hallmark Channel, just a bunch of romantic comedies, just repainted in a bunch of different ways, right? What do guys watch? Revenge movies just painted in a bunch of different ways, right? Either they killed their wife or they killed the dog or they killed the kid, right? And then they got to kill everybody that ever talked to the person or hung out with the person ever in their life, right? We have an innate desire for justice, but we have to be careful that we're not going into the flesh and now going overboard. Here's a, a proverb that's difficult for us to wrestle with. It's in Proverbs 24, verse 17 through 20. And here the Proverbs tells us, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him. And he turn away from his wrath from him. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked. For there will be no prospect for the evil man, and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Again, I'm not coming down from any position where I got this down. I'm the worst at this. I see someone trip or fall, my first reaction is not compassion. My first reaction is what you guys are doing right now, which is laughing, right? And yet God says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Because if our heart is glad, it will displease God and he will turn away his wrath from him. You see, our God is not a God that is first and foremost prone to wrath. If not, none of us would be here. You see, that's where we need to consider how good and how gracious God has been to us. And if we're calling for vengeance of God upon our enemies, what if God would have exacted his vengeance upon us while we were still enemies of his kingdom? Joel chapter 2 verse 13 tells us, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. You see, that's our God, our Savior, that's his first choice. It's just grace and kindness and love and mercy. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But God has that perfect line that none of us can see. You see, God has that line where he's long-suffering and long-suffering and gracious and kind and merciful. But there's just a line that we can't see that once we cross it, then God's vengeance begins to come out on us. You see, back in Numbers 25, we met this strange prophet named Balaam who knew that he was unable to curse God's people. So instead of trying to curse God's people for the fourth time, he instead tells the king of the Midianites to send women into the camp of Israel because if the men would commit sexual immorality with the women of Midian, then they would quickly turn to the idolatry of the gods of Midian and then God could not bless the people any longer but would have to exact justice. 
He can't bless them anymore because they live in sin and the wages of sin is death. So God is going to exact his vengeance here on the Midianites. God is holding true to his word in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God, he doesn't let the Midianites just get away with murder. God, he doesn't allow the Midianites to get away with causing God's people to stumble. God deals with them in his due time. I think David is one of the characters that we can look to that handles this with such balance. You see, you look through the Psalms and David literally prays, right? Imagine penning, hey Zach, I want to bring this worship song up to Calvary Chapel, Miami, right? God, I pray you'd bash the teeth of my enemies in, right? Allow them to be stillborns. Allow them to be like worms, right? That's David's prayer. But when David is there with his enemy, King Saul laying and asleep, he doesn't take it into his own hands. He allows the Lord to deal with it. And that's how we should act. We can go to our prayer closet. We can pray some of those strange psalms, right? Some of those strange prayers. God, would you just bash their teeth in, right? But we need to stand back and allow God, Lord, may you allow your perfect work. Lord, the best case scenario is for them to repent and get saved. Right? Think of Saul of Tarsus. How many Christians must have been out there praying, Lord, would you bash his teeth in? Lord, how many Christians have to be put in prison? Lord, how many Christians have to die at this man's hands? And yet God, he does something even greater. He's able to bring that man to repentance, get him saved, and then he's one of the champions of the faith. See, that's how our God works. So verse 3, Moses is obedient to God's command. At the end of verse 2, we're told, and Moses is told, after this, he's going to be gathered to your people. So a couple of chapters ago, we saw Moses. He had to give and hand the baton over to Joshua. Moses is still around. And here at this command, God says, hey, after you do this, then you're going to be gathered and you're going to be brought up to heaven with me and the rest of the people. Verse 3 and 4, so Moses spoke to the people saying, arm some of yourselves for war and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord. Again, they're not just taking vengeance for themselves. They're taking vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. Again, it's interesting here. We don't see Joshua gathering the people for battle. It's still Moses. In verse 5 and 6, So there were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Then Moses sent them to war, 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. And they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all the males. I think this is so important for us, such a great analogy. That many men today and many women are fighting battles against sexual sin. And the number one thing that we need to go into that battle with, it's with the holy articles. We need to go into those battles with the word of God, with prayer, with fasting, being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
abiding with Jesus. If anyone is here and you're fighting that battle against sexual sin, against pornography, against masturbation, against that woman at work, that guy at work, that person calling you, you need to go to war against it. Stop playing with it. Stop allowing room for it. But go to war against it with the holy articles. So they waged war and they wiped out all the males. Then in verse 8, they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed. Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. You see, no one gets away with it, right? At the end of the day, no one completely gets away with it. Balaam, he's still here. Balaam, he didn't live in Midian. Balaam lives far away. He gathered all of these riches from the king of the Midianites, and yet he didn't get to spend a single penny. He got justice from God, and he's put to death after causing the nation of Israel to fall into sin. And it's so interesting because in Numbers 23, verse 10, Balaam, he says, Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. You see, Balaam was so foolish here to think that he would be allowed to die the death of the righteous when he was living a life of foolishness and of sin. You see, we can't decide the death that we die, but we can decide the life that we live. And if we live lives of righteousness, if we live lives following Christ and following His Word, and we have a clear conscience before our God, we can die the death of the righteous. And we can die and we can go in peace. We can die and we can be like Paul saying, I've finished my race. I finished the course. I'm ready to go to the next place. I'm ready to go on this cruise into heaven and into eternity. Oftentimes when people live lives filled with sin, they think in the last moments they can sort of just change everything. We can get saved, but there's still difficulty that we have to deal with in that process. I encourage you tonight, live the life of the righteous so that you can die the death of the righteous. Verse 6, verse 9 through 11, it tells us, And the children of Israel took the women of Midian captive with their little ones and took as spoil all their cattle, all their flocks, and all their goods. They also burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt and all their forts. And they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. Verse 12, Then they brought the captives, the booty, and the spoil to Moses to Eliezer the priest, and to the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And Moses, Eliezer the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive. Right? Moses knows he's about to go home to be with the Lord. He says, eh, let's get angry one more time, right? What's the, what's the worst that could happen here? You see, that's not the case. Moses here has righteous indignation. What caused the nation of Israel to fall into sin? Balaam. What did Balaam instruct the king of Midian 
Who did he instruct the king of Midian to send into the camps of the Israelites? The women of Midian. And yet these righteous soldiers, right? They go in, they wipe all, all the men, and they just say, we'll keep all the women alive, right? Let's just be, let's be kind here and keep all the women alive. So foolish, and yet how often is that exactly what we do with the vices of our sins? We're willing to clear all of this stuff out, but the very thing that leads us into sin, oh, I think I got to keep that, right? I, I just have to keep that. I, I have to keep that phone. I have to keep that laptop, right? How about this one? I have to keep that specific job. I have to keep that specific friendship. I have to keep that specific relationship. I'll clear out all of this other stuff so that people could think that I'm holy, so that others can think I'm working hard against this sin, but I'm going to keep the very thing that led me into it. May we be wise to completely wipe out the things that cause us to sin. That we would be quick to not only lay down the sin, but the weight that so easily ensnares us. Verse 16, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. And as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh. Purify every garment... Everything made of leather, everything woven of goat's hair, and everything made of wood. So again, Moses says, you got to wipe out all the women that you committed sin with, all the women that have had sex before. you got to wipe them all out. You can only keep the young girls for the nation of Israel here. Then they had to purify themselves. You see, this act of vengeance, this would cause them to be unclean. The blood and the death and the killing caused them to be ceremonially unclean before God. And they would have to purify themselves before they could come back into the camp and before they could come back to the tabernacle, worshiping God and praising God once again. David Guzik, he says, this is a valid principle for us to observe when Christians want to plunder things from the world and use them for the cause of the gospel. We have to be so careful. Sometimes we think we'll just get the music of the world, the media of the world, and all of these things of the world, and somehow we'll be able to fashion it and use it for the sake of the gospel. Guzik continues, says, But some things cannot be cleansed and must be done away with. Other things can be cleansed and may be used by the people of God for the glory of God. All of the... Plunder from the Midianites was not beneficial to the Israelites. It would hurt them. It would cause them to sin. And the same is true with us. With us as believers, be careful what you're bringing in from the world into your home. Not everything is able to be cleansed. Not everything is able to be purified. Some things need to be left outside and other things can be cleansed and purified and used to bless the people of God and glorify our God. Verse 21, 
Then Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can endure fire, you shall put through the fire, and it shall be clean, and it shall be purified with the water of purification. But all that cannot endure fire, you shall put through water, and you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean, and afterward you may come into the camp. So all of the plunder had to be ceremonially clean or washed. So if they were bringing something that couldn't withstand fire, they have to wash it in the water. If they were bringing something that could withstand the fire, it had to be purified through the fire, and then it could be brought and used by God's people. Verse 25, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Count up the plunder that was taken of man and beast, you and Eliezer the priest, and the chief fathers of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts, between those who took part in the war, who went out to battle, and all the congregation, and levy a tribute for the Lord on the men of war who went out to battle, one of every 500 of the persons, the cattle, the donkeys, and the sheep, take it from their half and give it to Eliezer the priest as a heave offering from the Lord. And from the children of Israel's half, you shall take one of every 50 drawn from the persons, the cattle, the donkeys, the sheep, from all the livestock, and give them to the Levites who keep charge of the tabernacle of Moses. So Moses and Eliezer the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. Again, here we're given just a truth within God's work. Sometimes we think if someone's at the forefront, they're able to take all of the blessings of God, all of the benefits of God, and if I'm in the background, somehow I'm going to miss out on God's blessing. If I'm not able to go out in the missions field, I'm going to miss out. If I'm not out and about, if I'm not on the platform, if I'm not seen, somehow I'm going to miss out on God's blessing. But God, He blesses the whole body. Yes, those that went out to war, they got a little bit more, right? They, got, they kept, right? 500 to 1. But here, the rest of the nation of Israel, they kept 1 out of every 50. Other way around. They keep 50 and 1 of those 50 would go to the Lord. But how God, He's going to bless each of us. It's just, are we being faithful with what God has given us? Right? That's the joy of being a part of the body of Christ. Not each of us can go out to war. Not each of us can go out on the missions trip. Not each of us can go out to the West Coast for a day of hard labor. But there are those that can make sandwiches or give money for gas or buy a chainsaw and donate it. And that's the body of Christ. And that should be us today. That we are fine with whatever area of ministry God has called us to. Just be faithful to it. Don't be so worried about what other people are doing. Be concerned with what God has called you to do. And God will reward you, not to your work, but according to the faithfulness of what God has called you to do. So just be faithful to what God has called you to do. Verse 32, The booty remained from the plunder, which the men of war had taken, was 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all, of women who had not known a man intimately. And the half, the portion for those who had gone out to war, was in number 
337,500 sheep. And the Lord's tribute of the sheep was 675. The cattle were 36,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 72. The donkeys were 35,500, of which the Lord's tribute was 61. The persons were 16,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 32 persons. So Moses gave the tribute, which was the Lord's heave offering, to Eliezer the priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. So tons and tons of sheep, donkeys, goats, all of this stuff. We can jump down to verse 48. Then the officers who were over thousands of the army, the captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, came near to Moses. And they said to Moses, Your servants have taken a count of the men of war who are under our command. And not a man of us is missing. Not a man of us is missing. Are we able to stand back and when God does miracles among us, we give glory to God? And we realize what he's doing right here in front of us. And once Moses realizes this, once these servants, these officers realize this, what's the first thing they do? Wow, we were so great at war, right? We plan so effectively. We're so strong. We're so amazing. No, the very first thing they do, verse 50, therefore we have brought an offering for the Lord. They bring an offering to God. They praise God for his faithfulness, for his blessing. For his care. We need to be able to step outside of ourselves and our own pride and see God's work in our lives. Are you able to look back and see how God has carried you through all of these years? Are you able to look back and see how God has sustained you and taken care of you and been faithful to you? We should bring him that offering. That offering of praise, that offering of Thanksgiving, it's not just one day where we eat a ton of turkey, right? That's not what Thanksgiving is about. We should constantly be grateful for what God has done for us, how he's protected us, how he's seen us through so many battles and so many wars. Verse 50, therefore we've brought an offering for the Lord. What every man found of ornaments of gold, armlets and bracelets and signet rings and earrings and necklaces to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. So Moses and Eliezer the priests received the gold from them, all the fashioned ornaments and all the gold of the offering that they offered to the Lord from the captains of thousands and captains of hundreds and 16,750 shekels. The men of war had taken spoil, every man for himself, and Moses and Eliezer the priests received the gold from the captains of thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tabernacle of meeting as a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord.